so important to know as we open up Matthew 25, as Jesus presents a parable of, of readiness and commands us to be ready. The words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The will and the ability to live in Christ comes as a gift of God as he blesses us. Come on in. Come on in. Welcome. And so we've, we've got the promise of the, the song that we just sang. Mine are days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with him, but I, I look for worldly treasure. That's what we're used to. It's what we can touch and hold. And all too often we forsake the king of kings. We don't even notice really that we're doing it. But mine is hope in my redeemer. And though I fall... His love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing. I am his forevermore. Uh, forevermore. Every Sunday when we come to the, the propitiation time, I try to remind you that we don't come hoping that this time will be forgiven. That Hoping that if we can uh, get everything in the right way and say it in the right way this time, we come because we have been forgiven. There's assurance for us in that. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 25 this morning, verses 1 to 13. I need to prepare you for a shock. I think we'll be done with Matthew 25 in three weeks. And, and that's because the, the passages are just lengthy passages. There's the parable of the ten virgins. The, there, there's the parable of the talents which is a, a very lengthy parable, but there's just no way to split it up into multiples. And then verses 31 to 46 deals with final judgment. There might be two messages there, but maybe just one. So we took our time striding through chapter 24. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask for your blessing. <coughs> The scriptures are yours. They're not a human creation. They are God-breathed. They are your revelation of yourself to us. You tell us who you are. You tell us who we are. You tell us what our need is. You tell us what your provision is. And Lord, as we'll see this morning, you give ample warning and ample notice. There will be many, we know, who face eternal judgment on that day, but none of them will have an excuse of not knowing. You've even placed sufficient evidence of yourself within nature itself. As we come to the richness of your word, please teach us, please encourage us, strengthen our resolve as you work in us to will and then to work for your good pleasure. We thank you in Jesus' name. Because of the length of the 
the parable. We're just going to work through it a, a couple of verses at a time instead of reading it all at one time. And I'm still coughing from my cold, so sip away, get everything warm and lubricated. Then the kingdom of heaven, he says, may be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Uh, This is a parable. It's not a historical account, but parables were, were rooted in real events and things that people could relate to. They're not allegories. In the sense that we don't look at the parable and try and, and match up every single element of the parable with something. The parable is really a singular story making a, a simple point. In order to understand this, there's a little bit of information that would be helpful for you to have. So in terms of the kingdom of heaven, uh, the kingdom of heaven, the phrase the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are synonymous in the scriptures. Matthew primarily uses the phrase the kingdom of heaven. He uses it 31 times. Four times he talks about the kingdom of God. And because of that, uh, I've known people in the past who said, well, the kingdom of heaven is this thing and the kingdom of God is this thing. And whenever you read one, it's one. And when you ever read the other, it's the other. But Mark and Luke only use the kingdom of God including in the parallel passages to Matthew. So the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are are synonymous. There are 10 kingdom parables to be found in the gospel of Matthew. Most of them are found in chapter 13, which is this lengthy collection of parables that Jesus taught. Jesus introduces them by saying the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. If you care about such things, the word like is simply the adjectival form of the verb compare. So they're the same word. They're just used in a little different way. That's why sometimes he says it's like, and sometimes he says it's compared to, but he's using the same root word there. He's talking about ten virgins who take lamps and go out to meet the bridegroom. Um, Jewish weddings were not like our weddings. Jewish marriages were not like our marriages. Um, Jewish weddings that were, were, were accomplished through a three-part process. And for, for the sake of, of delicacy and respect for young ears, the first process was a ceremony at the home of the bride. There was dancing and celebration there. Following that, the couple consummated the marriage. Done with that part. And then the third part was the wedding feast. That began that evening sometime. And it could last for seven evenings. Uh, wedding feasts, we, we hear sometimes, could last a whole week. That wasn't a, a week, 24 hours a day, with people sleeping on the floor and waking up. It was people getting up, uh, going to the wedding feast in the evening, going home. In the day, they went to work, and the next night, they resumed the feast. That kind of an idea. The third part of the wedding, um, after that space in between... The bridegroom would come and lead a procession beginning from the bride's home through the village, through the town, gather up the guests and lead them to his home where he had prepared the place for he and his bride to live. Um, And then the feast would commence. The virgins here are a group of unmarried girls in their teens. 
They're friends of the bride. We might call them bridesmaids. And they were typically, because they were all at the home of the bride waiting for the bridegroom, they would be at the head of the procession. They would have clay lamps. Let's talk about lamps for a minute. I know this is kind of technical information. We get it out of the way now. I don't have to go into it later. Um, there were candles in the ancient world, but they were expensive. They were luxury items used by the wealthy. Most people simply had oil lamps. They burned olive oil. Just think of kind of like the old Aladdin's, Aladdin's lamp thing with a little handle and a bowl and a spout where a wick would go. The medium-sized lamps that would be used in a situation like this, especially for the wedding celebration, probably had a socket underneath where a pole could be fitted and the lamp could be held up high. They're used for safety. They're mainly, though, used for spectacle and celebration. It's a brightly lit, glad, dancing, singing celebration on the way to the home of the bridegroom. Um, these lamps would hold two or three ounces of oil, and they would burn perhaps three or four hours, depending on the oil and the conditions and what kind of a wick was used and, and that sort of thing. And so over the course of an entire evening, if you're going to burn the lamp from uh, evening until daylight, you're going to burn six or eight ounces. We're going to see that the girls, the wise girls, had flasks of oil with them. They just had a fairly small amount. Maybe a cup of oil was all that was necessary. Okay, so we're set there. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Then we get into the details. Now, verse 2, five of them, the virgins, were foolish, and five were prudent. The word there is sensible. It could be translated wise, but sensible, prudent is, is a good translation. When the foolish took their lamps, this is why they're foolish, they took no oil with them. Now, if you have an oil lamp, <coughs> having oil to burn in the lamp, seems the wise thing to do. These are probably not lamps that would have been used in the household because they were made for these processions. When the wedding was over and the lamp had burned out of oil, they just left it as it was. You wouldn't fill it and let it sit on the shelf for months and months waiting for the next wedding. That would be a waste. So they've shown up at the bride's house. The daytime ceremony has gone on. But when the night comes, they've got no oil. The prudent took oil in flasks and small containers. If you want to think of like a, a Boda bag, a little skin bag perhaps, that would hold eight or ten ounces of oil, not a lot. The sensible girls, by the way, the prudent girls, uh, and I don't mean this in a demeaning way at all, they're not geniuses. This is not super intelligence. This isn't Einstein level of intelligence. This is simply understanding I've got, a, I've got an oil lamp and I need to have something to burn in it. And, and I'll keep reminding you, this is not a historical account. This is a parable. And so there's a reason why Jesus doesn't say, so they just went to the large quantity of olive oil that every house would have because it was used for food, it was used for cooking, it was used for medicine, it was used for, for being clean. They would, they would, it sounds weird, but men would apply oil to their beards and comb it out in order to, to be clean. And it was used in lamps. So people would have 10, 20 gallon containers of oil in their homes. It was used for many things. Why don't they just go there and get it? Well, it's a parable. Jesus is making a point. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. 
But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. So again, as I said, there was a span of time between the public ceremony at the house of the bride and the feast. During that time, the wedding guests would return to their own homes and wait for the procession. The girls would wait at the house of the bride. When the bridegroom was ready and he headed off toward the bride's house, uh, the friend of the bridegroom, what we would call a best man, would go ahead of the bridegroom and begin shouting out, behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. This is the role that John the Baptist played, John chapter 3, verses 26 to 30. John says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. He also says, by the way, he must increase and I must decrease. Even though the, the friend of the bridegroom is the first voice that's heard, he quickly diminishes in importance when the bridegroom arrives. So the, the girls have fallen asleep because of the late hour. They're awakened by the friend of the bridegroom. They quickly get up and they prepare for their role, which is to go with the procession and provide the light with these lamps. They trim off the burdens of the wicks. They fill them with oil. They light them. And this is when the foolish girls realize that they have no oil. They have nothing to burn. So the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Well, yeah, the, if the wicks had been used before, there's still some oil in them. That would burn, but not for very long, because there's no oil in the, the basin to, to catch up and burn. But the prudent answered, the sensible answered, and said, no, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. I remember seeing a sign on a, a former church secretary's desk that said, a lack of planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. It was, it was a little bit of a blunt thing to see in a church office, but it was what it was. And it, it accurately represented the attitude of the secretary in, in question. Each of these girls is responsible for her own role. It's a simple task. They're 13, 14 years old, 15 years old. They're mid-teens. They're not yet married. All they've got to do is show up with the lamp and, and the wick. The wick would be made out of woven flax. Sometimes they would take papyrus and they would weave it into a, a strand and use that. And oil. It's real simple. And they haven't brought any oil. They want the sensible girls to share their supply of oil with them, but if they do that, no lamps will stay lit through the night. And the sensible girls say no. It's not a matter of selfishness, it's a matter of physics. This is not about selfishness. It's simply not possible to do that. And being sensible, the sensible girls make a sensible suggestion. Go buy what you need. Go obtain what you need. The, the emphasis here is that each girl is responsible for her own role. Each girl is responsible for her own readiness and preparation. So let's stop there and just consider the spiritual aspect of this. You alone are responsible for your life in Christ. Nobody can prepare you. Nobody can be prepared for you. Nobody can be prepared in your name. Nobody can give it to you. You have to go and obtain that from the Lord himself. Now, Jesus is our mediator. 
There's no question about that. But he mediates for us so that each individual person who comes to him may be born again and adopted as a child of God. God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. We come to him individually, which is really scary. Now, praise God, Jesus is our mediator. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. (coughs) Excuse me, the man Christ Jesus. As our mediator, Jesus has made a way for us to go to the Father. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, a mediator, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is the mediator, you can draw near. He won't draw near for you. Let me explain that. Jesus didn't go before the Father so that you don't have to. Jesus doesn't say to us, my child, you don't need to pray. I've prayed for you. You don't need to study the scripture. I've done that for you. You don't need to bless others. I've already done that. You don't need to worship. I've already glorified the Father. Jesus says, my beloved child, I've paid the price. I've opened heaven's gates for you. I give you my righteousness and the credit for my good works so that when you go before the Father, he will receive you like he receives me. Jesus opens up the way for us to go to the Father in his boldness and in his joy. But he doesn't go before the Father so that we don't have to. He makes a way so that we can go. And in this parable, Jesus warns us strongly to be wise and sensible rather than foolish, living in readiness for the reality of his coming, which means living in daily faith and faithfulness. Now he explains why this is so important at verse 10. And while they were going away to make the purchase, so the, the, the ladies have uh, gone off to find... Excuse me. These ladies have gone off to find an oil merchant. Again, it's a parable. They don't go home. They don't root around in the house to find oil. They go to find a merchant. Again, it's a parable. It's not a historical account. Would merchants have been open at midnight? Maybe not. Maybe they they were expected to go find one and knock on the door and wake him up and talk him into selling them something. Maybe this is happening in the middle of the summer, and it's so hot during the day that the marketplaces are really closed, and then they open up again in the evening and stay open late because of the heat. I don't know. We're not told. The bridegroom comes, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. That word shut implies barred. It implies locked. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. The bridegroom comes, finds half the virgins ready. What does he do? He doesn't wait. He doesn't say, let's just wait. 
We'll just wait for him to get back. He says, no, I'm not delaying. I'm calling the shots. This is happening, happening according to my schedule. They've had ample time to prepare. Their unpreparedness is their own fault. They can blame no one but themselves. They make their way to his home. Everybody goes inside, and the door is shut. And then later, the girls come. That word later could be hours. <coughs> it's not just the word then. There's a span of time. And they call out, Lord, Lord, open up for us. So let's talk about this duplication of words, Lord, Lord. Uh, names and titles are sometimes repeated in Scripture. It's never accidental. It's always deliberate. It, it, it usually indicates a deeply felt need, an earnest plea, full of intimacy and, and emotion. It's built on a relationship. Sometimes the primary emotion is sadness. In Matthew 23, Jesus stands above the city of Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, but you were not willing. Sometimes the primary emotion is one of fear. Jesus and the disciples found themselves in the middle of a terrible storm in the Sea of Galilee, in Luke chapter 8, we read, they came to him and they woke him up and said, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became called, Master, Master, their need is obvious. And the relationship is obvious. They're passionate about it. Sometimes the, the primary feeling is a kind of sweet, kindly tenderness. Jesus was at the house of uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he was teaching, and, and uh, Mary was there sitting at his feet listening, and she was not helping, and Martha went to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this by myself? Then tell her to help me. And Jesus says, kindly, sweetly, Martha, Martha, you, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but your sister's chosen the good thing. There's no... There's no harsh rebuke there. There's no meanness. He's kind. You see how this kind of phrasing works? Well, we have Lord repeated four times in the scriptures. All of them are in the Gospels. In fact, all of them are in Matthew and Luke. The first time is in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name, did we not prophesy and in your name cast out many demons and in your name do many miracles? He says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In Luke chapter 6, Verse 46, in the same context, Jesus says, Now, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then we have the five foolish virgins here. In every case, in all four cases where Lord is repeated, we have people presuming upon a relationship that doesn't actually exist. I never knew you. Jesus says in Matthew 7, I don't, do not know you, he says in Matthew 25. There's no relationship here. 
Why are you speaking to me like we're best friends? I don't know you. You're not coming in. It's like the, the, the passage in Isaiah 29, where God describes Israel. He says, these people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me. The picture there is they'll talk, but then they, they keep their lives out of my reach. They keep their hearts out of my reach. There's no relationship there. There's no true faith. There's no true obedience. It seems to me, you can make your own decision on this, it seems to me that in each of these situations, especially Matthew 7 and Matthew 25, the speakers seem to imply that the Lord has made a terrible mistake. Jesus sets those aside in Matthew 7, and they say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we do all the stuff you want? You're making a mistake. It's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. We'll forgive you. Just let us in. And he says, I never knew you. And the girls knock on the door and say, Lord, Lord, open up to us. You forgot we're out here. We were invited. We're part of the wedding party. You've made a mistake. Just open up, though. It's okay. And he says, I, I don't know you. I don't know you. He just shakes his head. It's impossible to fool the Lord Jesus Christ. John 2, 23 to 25 makes it clear that there was never a time when Jesus did not know everything that there is to know about every person who ever lived. John writes, he didn't need anybody to testify to him about a person. He knew what was in that person already. It's easy to fool us. It's impossible to fool him. Judas Iscariot did a good job fooling the other disciples. The night that he was betrayed, by the way, Jesus is, is giving these parables on Wednesday of Passion Week. The next night on Thursday uh, at, at the Last Supper, Jesus says, shocking everybody in the room, that truly, truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. And all of the disciples are horrified. And they all say, is it me? Am I going to do that? Jesus knew that it was Judas. Judas had fooled them. Judas had done such a good job fooling them that Peter thought it was him. John thought it was himself. Andrew thought it was himself. Could that be me? Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Judas was the devil when Jesus chose him. He was the betrayer when Jesus chose him. The son of perdition, he's called in John 17. And the truth is that the false believers in Matthew 7 and Matthew 25 could call Jesus Lord a hundred times, and it wouldn't change anything. It wouldn't affect anything. The reality was they were unprepared. No amount of religious activity or good deeds can save anyone. God saves those who come to him in faith and repentance. And the, these people in the parable have not developed that relationship. And maybe the greater error in Matthew 25 that stands out is the assumption that no matter what the Bible says, Jesus won't actually turn anyone away. 
there's kind of this common idea that when somebody dies, they immediately go to the Lord and he's got scales and he puts their works on scales and he sees which one balances out. And most people who have that view really aren't very worried about it. Some of them think it's because their good works outweigh their bad works. I think some of them might think, you know, I know what he says in there, but when I'm actually there, when I'm actually with him, is he going to look me in the eye and cast me out? And they're presuming that they'll ever be that close to him. At death, those who don't know the Lord go to the grave to await judgment. They don't go to the presence of Christ to get a foretaste of glory to come and then have that taken away. They believe the devil's lie to Eve. You remember what he said? Oh, no, you won't die. Has God not given you anything to eat? Oh, no, we can eat anything except that fruit. If we eat it or touch it, she was wrong on that. If we eat it and touch it, we'll die. Oh, no, you won't die. The devil is still telling that lie to people in the world. Eternal life is not a reward for doing the right things. It's the gift of God to those whom he knows. Jesus says in his prayer in John 17, this is eternal life, to know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. To know, not to know about, but to know through faith and a surrendered life. So what's the solution? Well, let's be clear. There is no solution for those who have died. Those who die apart from Christ, there is no solution. There's no fix. It's given man once to die, and after this comes judgment. We see that depicted here. The girls come to the house and they knock and they say, Lord, Lord, open up to us. And he says, no, I don't know you. It's too late. The obvious solution for those who are still alive and unsaved is not just to say, Lord, Lord, but to actually surrender to him. Surrender their lives to him as Lord and trust him as Savior. There are two things we can be sure of. First is that verbal claims to be Christians are worthless they're just worthless. I've had a, a number of people in different contexts say to me, oh, I'm a Christian, I've got no doubt. Like, that's the first problem. Is, is that you're so, you, you have such a lack of awareness of your own sinful nature and tendencies that you think you're a Christian because, of course, you're a Christian. You're an American. Of course, you're a Christian. You go to church. Of course, you're a Christian. Your parents were Christians. Of course you're a Christian, you were baptized, you were confirmed, you raised your hand, you went forward, you signed the card, whatever it was. Genuine believers, in, in my experience, which is purely anecdotal, I get that, but genuine believers go through times where they say, am I? Do I really know him? And those are usually the times when we're coming to grips with our own inability I can't live this life. I can't do this perfectly well. I can't be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. I can't live that way. And Jesus says, yes, I know. I've been waiting for you to realize that. That's why I died. I died to save you. I didn't die to give you the ability to save yourself. Trust in me is what he says. 
So verbal claims to being a Christian are worthless. Second, those who truly abandon those false claims and turn to Jesus in faith and trust him alone for their salvation will be saved. I need to clean up my life first. No, you don't. You don't. I'm not ready. Today is the day for salvation. Today is the day. Don't delay. You may not have a tomorrow. We all have a span of time allotted to us. And those days run out one day at a time. And we just don't know. We just don't know. And, and those of us who, who are old, old enough understand that death doesn't always come to those who are very elderly and infirm. Sometimes death comes to people in the midst of the prime of life. Sometimes it comes to children. And you learn some of those lessons as you age. It just takes time to not take those things for granted, to not take any relationship for granted, because it may not be there tomorrow. As we bring this home, Jesus, again, in verse 13, gives us a very clear, concise application. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Those were his first words in the previous passage, verse 42 of chapter 24. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. He commands us to stay awake, to stay alert. Our time is running the clock is running. The lamps of the foolish virgins representing their lives were just dry and empty and therefore useless. A lamp without oil is useless. A human life without Jesus Christ is dry and useless to God. So what's the state of your lamp? Are you maintaining it daily? Do you maintain it with the word of God and worship and prayer and service and faith in Christ and faithfulness to Christ? It really takes so little to do. It, it's, it's just sensible. There's a reason why Jesus gives us the picture of the, the wise or the sensible and the foolish and simply says that the sensible girls were not extraordinary. They weren't brilliant. They just had oil. The, the foolish girls were, were not utterly beyond all hope. They just were clueless. They paid no attention. They thought, oh, we'll get, it, we'll get it from somebody else when the time comes. I've shared the gospel with people who said, I'm not ready, I'll do that later. You may not have a later. Today is the day of salvation. Filling a lamp, tending a lamp was not an all-day task. Growing in Christ is not an all-day task. Now, being a Christian is a full-time occupation. That's true. But it doesn't require that you quit your job and go on welfare. It's a little bit of time in the Word. And then it's responding to the Lord in prayer based on His Word. We're all prone to neglect these things different times of our life, different seasons of our life, different weeks. I'm as prone as anybody else to waking up and thinking, I haven't had a, a settled prayer time in weeks. I've just been going through life and responding to everything. I need to get out ahead of it again. I do that. 
I'm in the word professionally, and I can forget to be in the word personally. I want to remind you that your God is not far away from heaven, uh, far away in heaven, passively watching you from a, a tremendous distance through a telescope. He is with you. He is near to you. He's with us every moment of the day. If you're in Christ, you're doubly held. Jesus in John 10 says, uh, nobody can take you out of my hand. He says, the Father is greater than I am, and nobody can take you out of the Father's hand. I kind of mentally picture that as being held in the hand of Christ, and the hand of Christ is held by the Father. You're not getting out. He's not going to throw you away. That's not why we live faithfully. We live faithfully because of our love with him, the love of him. The Holy Spirit indwells us and makes us home within us. Jesus promises at the end of Matthew to be with us to the end of the age. Paul stood before Nero, Emperor Nero, nuttier than a Roman fruitcake. I mean, he was bats and a terrible threat. And Paul stood in front of him with nobody around him and said, but the Lord stood with me. That wasn't philosophical. That wasn't theoretical. Paul knew the presence of Christ in that moment of pressure and crisis. The Father wills our salvation. The Son purchased it. The Holy Spirit applies it to our lives. Those words from Philippians 2 are so important to remember. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why do you want to walk with Christ? Because the Spirit of God is at work in you. Why do you have the ability today to trust him? Because the Spirit of God is within you. So take what he has willed within you and the ability he's given you and just walk it out. I want to be able to trust the Lord like Penny trusts the Lord. But I can only do that when he gives me the will and gives me the ability. We're dependent on him. Our part, frankly, is the easy part. The heavy lifting all comes from the Lord. He does the hard part. Our part is to keep our lamps filled. Our part is to be ready. Not one of us lives perfectly as we ought. We have a Savior who delivers us, a Lord who guides us, a shepherd who nurtures us, a king who defends us, a father who loves us. So cast yourself into his hands. Trust him. Rejoice in his promises. Worship him with your tears, if necessary. Father, we thank you for your love for us. <coughs> we, we see the, the command and the commendation to be prepared, to be ready. We see that what you've called us to do is not hard. It's not difficult to accomplish. And yet, as, as Paul talks about in Romans 7, there's a battle that rages within us. The fallen human soul is suicidal. It would rather choose death and destruction on its own terms than salvation and peace on your terms. So we ask that you do this overriding work within our hearts to give us a hunger and a longing for your word and for fellowship with you in prayer. Give us by faith the awareness that you are with us.
We thank you for this.